Thank you for calling Gay Wire. Your call is very important to us. Press 1 for fourth wave feminism. Press 2 for a strangely in-depth discussion about where the worms have gone. Press 3 for... You have chosen option 3. Please stay on the line. Thank you for choosing option three. You've reached Gaywire, where everything's at least a little bit queer. It is I, once more, coming to you from Treaty 6, Region 4 of the Métis Nation, Artemis Peasley, with she, her pronouns. You're listening to CJSR 88.5 in so-called Edmonton, out of the U of A. Just a few announcements to make. Gaywire is currently recruiting new members. Do you want to be a reporter and interview fellow queer people? Do you want to be a DJ and amplify queer voices? Or do you just want to be a segment producer, editor, or host? Either way, we need your help, dear audience. Ask your friends, ask your family, ask that weird guy who lives across the street from you, but damn, does he ever have a nice voice. Ask anyone, ask yourself, Ask everyone. We need you. Otherwise, please donate to the Community Fridge on White Ave, located in Earth's General Store, as well as donate to Q Lawrence, who is a disabled rights activist in BC, who is in desperate need of a wheelchair. You can find them at Q, just the letter, on Instagram. On today's episode, our magical host, Chenille, does his first interview with Kevin Schultz, a conversion therapy survivor, speaking on his experiences through the recently criminalized practice of conversion therapy. Content warning, as this episode contains several possibly triggering subjects, such as homophobia, mental health, and practices that are now considered torture. If you feel unsafe or a danger to yourself or others, please call 811 or 780-482-4357-HELP. That's 811 or 780-482-4357-HELP. Please stay safe, everyone. Now, on with the interview with Chenille and Kevin Schultz.
content warning for the upcoming material you are about to hear. This interview is mainly about the recently criminalized act of conversion therapy and its past and present repercussions, but also mentions mental health issues, homophobia, and the AIDS epidemic. Listeners, please be warned and take care of yourselves before listening. Uh, So Kevin, could you please introduce yourself for our audience and a little bit about yourself? Uh, my name is Kevin Schultz. Uh, I'm 54 years old. I was married for 17 years to a woman and have three young adult children. And I've been married to my husband for 10 years, the coming on 11 years. Um, in your own words, could you define the act of conversion therapy? Sure. It's a broad umbrella that covers quite a bit. Um, It all originated from uh, a study in the 60s done by Masters and Johnson, uh, in which the results were later proved to be falsified, but in which um, he claimed that he could convert people from gay to straight through his um, so-called psychological treatments, that it is possible to change your sexuality from gay to straight, and that uh, being gay is a psychological disorder that can be cured through psychological and, in the case of religious groups, uh, spiritual interventions. Uh, A number of religious groups grabbed onto that study uh, through the 70s in particular, and then later in the 80s. And a whole lot of groups were formed, and they all grouped together under a broader umbrella called Exodus International. So there were several groups underneath that, and uh, they particularly spread in the 80s. And like I said, into the 90s, but they still continue today, although Exodus International has since disbanded. It doesn't exist anymore. Okay, thank you very much. For any of our audience that don't know, um, Bill C-4, which effectively bans conversion therapy in Canada, was made into law on December 8th, 2021, and punishments for the criminal act came into effect on January 7th, 2022. Another question for you, Kevin. Um, Are you all right being referred to as a survivor of conversion therapy, or would you prefer something else? Sure. I've never thought of it like that, but sure, yeah, I was a survivor. How have you thought of it? I actually, uh, that's a good question. No one's asked me that before. Uh, When I look back, I see it as part of my journey. Um, I think when I really saw how harmful it was firsthand, I, it really propelled me out of the closet. Um, and so it was a very instrumental part of my coming out uh, that may not have happened had I not seen just how awful the practices were that they were doing. Um, so I, I just see it as part of my journey, what, like what I did. That's very interesting. Uh, So I'm aware that you spoke with CBC News in a previous interview about your experience with conversion therapy back in 2018, uh, before the national ban had taken place. If you can, could you share a couple stories about your experience with conversion therapy with this audience? Uh, Sure. No, conversion therapy, I mean, there's all kinds of uh, ways that it's approached. Um, There's uh, the group that I was a part of at the end uh, of my experience was kind of two-pronged they there was i worked one-on-one with a i used the term loosely therapist uh although he had no training he was actually a caterer and uh then that there was that individual work and there was workbooks to go through and then there was a group 
session that occurred once a week for a year and you had to sign up for all 50 sessions. And that was about two hours once a week. Uh, it was out in a warehouse actually in the West End, probably the only place that would rent to them. And there would, must have been about 50 of us there, both men and women. And uh, it would start with sort of a, a group, a larger group. And usually there'd be some singing and then a, a message about whatever was in the workbook for that week. And then we'd break into smaller groups. I think there were six of us with one leader and more in-depth discussion about that. And that was the, the normal weekly format, as I remember, yes. Um, I've heard that it could sometimes get very violent. Was that something that happened at all in your experience? Violent, no. There's a lot of really strange things though. Um, for example, they had, um, I forget what they called it, some sort of rebirth where you like supposedly went back into the womb with these blankets around you and people pushing you, like you were getting born and pushed into this room where these women were waiting to hug you and hold you and give you the love that supposedly your mother didn't. Um, see, it's, I'm, not, I'm not sure like what your research showed, but in everything I've seen in conversion therapy, um, it's based on an underlying assumption that uh, no one is created gay. No one is born gay. Everyone uh, becomes that way through um, psychological injury. And it's usually pinned on the parents, but it could be anyone in your family tree. So one of the exercises we also had to do was build a family tree and name all the, the sins of our ancestors, uh, including any divorce, alcoholism, abuse and if you couldn't find anything it meant you weren't looking hard enough and you were admonished to work harder at it and it could go grandparents aunts uncles anyone who caused you to become gay uh so you touch on a point um i wanted to talk about uh conversion therapy often comes from very religious views or as you said it originates from very debunked science did you enter conversion therapy via a religious group or did some other organization have a role to play in your experience of entering into conversion therapy? No, it was through a religious group. And um, really the, the drive there, it's been really um, helpful for me to read some of Brene Brown's work, where she says the opposite of belonging is fitting in. And the entire exercise was to train us how to fit in. Uh, and, and even some of the sessions were dedicated to how to behave more masculine, like, like we were supposed to watch hockey games and get engaged and <laughs> just wasn't interested. Women were supposed to do more things like sewing and cooking and stop watching hockey. So the, the, when I look back, I mean, it's quite hilarious, but um, there were lessons on how to fit in, how, how to look more straight. Uh, I understand that now. At the time, I was like, really? This is supposed to help? If you're okay answering, has this changed your view on religion at all, this experience that you've gone through? Yes, certainly, yeah. But it was a long, it was a long process for me, because um, when I uh, came out of the closet, I, I was rejected by the church that I was a part of, but I did find another church that is accepting of gays, and um, so for a long time I went through a period where I hated the religious right, where now um, I, I've kind of evolved past that where I feel compassion and sadness for them. 
because uh, I see the insecurity that they feel and and yeah, it's a it's a sad place to be. They feel threatened and um, afraid, yeah. and and terrified of not fitting in, not belonging to their group. And thank you for sharing that. Um, many young uh, uh, LGBT folk like myself have sort of a complicated relationship with religion, and so I'm really happy to hear that you've sort of found like some peace with religion. Greta Vosper really helped me. She's a United Church minister who writes. And um, if, if your religion makes you a better person, a more loving, more compassionate person, then it's wonderful. If it does the opposite, it should be abandoned. And so there are some good people even in those religions. Uh, a very good friend of mine who's very, very supportive and, and has been involved in a Pentecostal church, I asked her point blank, like, how do you, how do you support my husband and I and still be a part of that church and she just she summed it up so well she said just because some middle-aged white man says something at the front doesn't mean I believe it <laughs> say whatever they want but <laughs> I'm gonna just live my life <laughs> love that um so um sorry getting back a little bit more to the heavier things um, so here's just some more info uh, for our audience who may not have been following the ban on conversion therapy. So like I said, um, in, uh, in January, uh, this past couple of days, um, it's official that there are punishments associated with the crime of trying to enact <coughs> conversion therapy. Um, here are a couple statistics for you guys. Um, so up to five years in prison for attempting to subject another to the, to the act of conversion therapy in Canada up to two years in prison for trying to advertise about conversion therapy, up to five years in prison for removing a minor to subject him to conversion therapy abroad, and up to two years in prison for profiting or attempting to profit from conversion therapy. Um, so Kevin, do you have any opinions on types of punishments that are being given now for conversion therapy? Uh, yeah, I, I say good luck because what happens is they just change the name of it and it just keeps going. The same people who ran the program that I was in are still running it and they call it something else. Uh, they just come up with creative names. It's still running out of the old um, Baptist uh, College campus on Saddleback Road. And they just call it help with, right now, <coughs> the latest term is help with dealing with unwanted same-sex attraction. SSA, they use, they say. So do you have... Any thoughts on a probable solution or do you not see a solution in the near future? Yeah, no, honestly, my belief is um, it will die out with this next generation. I'm not sure that it can be changed, like people's hearts and minds can be changed. And I do believe that um, as people your age and younger come of age, um, it will become rarer and rarer to see these kind of things around. Uh, very different from my generation when couldn't have even had an interview like this. Yeah, I, I think it will be a generational thing that will just die out. Well, fingers crossed. So I know you said you don't really think of yourself in terms as a survivor of conversion therapy. Um, but many people, I, I think many people have been traumatized by conversion therapy and are still facing that trauma. So um, more information for our audience. Uh, do you know of any groups or gatherings that sort of support these survivors or help with their trauma? No, huh. no, I don't. No? Um, 
I mean, I was on my own journey. Um, and and you see, another thing that I, I guess you wouldn't realize uh, having not been exposed to it is um, everything in conversion therapy was cloaked in secrecy. We weren't allowed to know each other's last names. We were never allowed to exchange phone numbers, emails. We could never contact each other outside of the group. So I had no way of contacting any of the people that I had been in the group with. Uh, there was no way, and anybody who had left, there was no way to find them. So it never crossed my mind. Um, yeah. Um, so you you don't have any contact with any other people who were um, at, at this at this place? You don't know any of them outside of conversion nope. therapy? Oh. And they were encouraged to use aliases, so I don't even know if the names I knew were even their names. So. Oh, that's that's yeah. kind of sad. Oh, it was very intentional because that a huge problem with people finding each other at these groups and then you know connecting and leaving uh it was a huge problem it kept happening all the time and so they put as many things in place to try to keep it from happening but um that's actually what happened why exodus international disbanded in the end is <laughs> kept losing people so um it was their attempt but for myself i never um I, I had no contact with anyone outside of the group. Do you think people such as yourselves who survived this, would they benefit from maybe some sort of gathering of like, we shared this trauma together, so let's share the healing? Do you think that would help? I think it could help. Um, yeah, I, I think it could help. And I think there are groups um, that probably do that. Um, I, I mean, like I say, I found my own path, um, but I, I can't see it hurting, uh, re-traumatizing. No, I don't think so. Honestly, I didn't feel traumatized. To be really blunt, I felt stupid. When it was over and I looked back, and I, I and even now I look back kind of embarrassed, like, how dumb could I have been? Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting take. Uh, another question I had was, um, so going forward, you said you, you did say that you think like there won't be a law that will end it. It will more just disappear naturally as people sort of, yeah, they just do away with that thinking. Um, but is there anything that you would like to say um, to the community and maybe the country as large of why this act should disappear? Because at its very core, the teaching of conversion therapy is that we're broken uh, and we are uh, yeah, broken. That was the word that was used repeatedly. And we need to be healed. Um, and both statements are false. Um, we are not broken. And there's nothing to heal. There's nothing wrong with us. And <clears throat> I think where conversion therapy really um, crosses the line to dangerous is they do dabble in people's past trauma. And I witnessed that myself uh in one of the very small groups that i was in um one individual started to describe what was clearly um visual and auditory hallucinations telling him to kill himself and the leader of this group with no training whatsoever told him you are being hounded by a demon and you need to be prayed for where clearly he needed to be admitted to a hospital and have psychiatric intervention um, for me, that was the breaking point um, where I stood up and left the room and never looked back um, because I realized it was no longer, I, I'd been wondering for a while if this was kind of useless, if I was wasting my time. 
at that moment I realized it's harmful. It is dabbling in people's past traumas. It's uh, playing with things that they don't understand. And, and unfortunately, suicide is the natural result of, of where many people end up because they realize I can't change and they say I should change. And so, so really banning conversion therapy is about saving lives and telling people they are okay, they're not alone. Um, it's also, well, I mean, just by its nature, filled with lies. But one of the, the biggest lies that they told was um, that if we did leave this group and embrace the gay lifestyle, we would be all alone, we would die of AIDS, no one would be our friends, we would lose our families, we would lose everything. Um, and it was completely false. I had, I had no exposure to the gay community. Um, but when I did come out and become a part of the gay community, I realized nothing could be further from the truth. It is a warm, welcoming, inviting community. Um, and so always my message is if there's anyone listening to this and is in that place, I just want to tell you that you are not alone. And there's an entire community of people waiting for you. You are not broken. You don't need healing. Uh, come and we are waiting for you. Thank you for that. The last question, do you think the government or even these groups that have done these things, do you think there's any sort of um, burden on them to right the wrongs that they've done to that these people that they've traumatized, mm. these thoughts that they've put out into the world, is there a burden on them to repair that damage that they've wrought? Uh, that, no, that gets really to a good question. And I would say there is a fantastic Netflix documentary, and I think it's called Conversion. Um, and it's talking to a bunch of uh, people who used to run Exodus International and have and now feel such remorse for the messages they gave and the things they said. Um, I don't think they can make it right. And I'll confess, um, I have fantasized about seeing the individual who counseled me and walking up to him and just saying, how can you even look in the mirror when you've hurt so many people? So I would love to do that. Yet I, what really came up to me in the documentary watching um, about the people who ran the program is they were just as hurting and broken as me. Um, they were all uh, gay people themselves. Uh, trying to not be gay, um, their motives were wrong, um, but their hearts are probably in the right place uh, to some degree, if, if that makes sense. Um, everything was misinformed, um, but they were just people. They were just people. And even, even the individual who counseled me is a gay man who won't accept himself. And so is there a burden on them to make it right? I don't think they can. And for myself personally, I've made a decision to not live as a victim. Um, I'm not their victim. Uh, I just moved on. <laughs> just life's too short and too wonderful to be stuck in that uh, quagmire. Uh, so I, I guess what I would wish for anybody running those programs is that they could find the life I've found. And if they could see, uh, yeah, just everything that they think is wrong, uh, 
it's it's yeah would be but i think it would be too much to put on them that they have to make it right um that can't be done no that's fair a little bit contradictory to what you've been saying but indulge me um so i know you you said you don't think of yourself as a survivor and that you think that this act of conversion therapy will die out uh, but do you think it's worth keeping a record that this happened for future um lgbtq kids to know like this is something that we've suffered this is something that we've overcome never forget because it could come back like um you did say it could die out and i i definitely agree with you there but you know things that we tend to forget have a have a way of coming back you know what i mean oh yeah i don't think we should forget it it's mm. an important part of our history and and believe me i have such anger and resentment to masters and johnson for all the harm that they did um no it's an important part of our history and um i so this is kind of a joke that that we have in the gay community among people my age anyways um that one way that we can tell if a guy is straight is if he asks us why did you get married in the first place because a gay man would never ask that <laughs> the answer is so obvious but my hope is that the younger generation coming up will be able to honestly ask that and say why did you get married in the first place because they'll have no clue um as to what the realities we were living in um so i does that answer your question it definitely does like um uh, sorry just a personal example here um so i've technically grown up with the with the knowledge with the thought that if i wanted to marry another man i could like that's always sort of been my reality when when i actually like looked at the at the article that's only been legal in alberta since 2005. yeah and and it probably isn't possible um for for people in your generation to know what it was like for me coming of age in the 80s during the aids crisis and you know rampant homophobia everywhere like what the kind of fear we lived in and yeah that needs to be documented and remembered um honestly i saw conversion therapy as um at that time as saving me uh, from certain death because i did know people who got aids and it was a death sentence there was no cure there was no way out of it um and so there was like several factors coming together and and i heard um we we didn't have gay mentors to lean on they were too busy dying um, there was no one for us. Uh, the community was in crisis, uh, in a horrible crisis. And um, so it was, it was just such a different world. And uh, so all these things come together. It wasn't just conversion therapy and isolation, but conversion therapy flourished in the AIDS crisis um, for probably a couple of reasons, fear of AIDS and also the gay community being so completely subsumed into this fatal pandemic that was taking so many people so yeah it's, it's a complex history but it's our history and it's important to remember it um, and i mean you're talking about gay marriage in your lifetime uh, a lot of people don't realize when i was born um in 1967 
homosexual acts were still illegal and punishable by up to 14 years in prison until 1969. Uh, so <laughs> it's very recent history uh, that we're talking about. So. No, and it's important history. Uh, before we go, though, is there anything you'd like to add? Anything you would like the audience to take away from this, or anything you'd like them to know? It, it's easy to to vilify the people running those programs, and and I've fallen into that too. But to remember, they're just people too that are very misinformed and uh, very confused um, and hurting. Uh, I think really, really hurting. And um, I hope if we can reach to them with compassion, uh, I guess what I'm saying, watching that that documentary about the the leaders of that of the Exodus movement, um, and I saw how broken they were in the tears. and 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 one woman said when she was meeting with some gay people and and they were sharing how much hurt they went through, she said, the first time in my life, I realized I was on the wrong side of the table. And and I felt compassion for them. Like they they were caught up in a train. Um, God knows I could have ended up the same thinking, you know, I was doing the right thing. So yeah, I I would say all around it, it needs compassion. But I'd be happy if they went to jail for a bit too. Oh yeah, for sure, <laughs> for sure. Just, just as a society, uh, the law is important because it protects vulnerable people, which is exactly what people that are thinking about conversion therapy are, very vulnerable people. For our audience, this has been an interview with Kevin Schultz about the recent conversion therapy ban in Canada. This interview was done through Gaywire here on CJSR in so-called Edmonton. Thank you all and good night. That was Kevin Schultz speaking with our reporter, Chenille, about his experiences through conversion therapy, played to you direct from Gaywire on CJSR 88.5 FM in so-called Edmonton out of the U of A. And if that wasn't enough, here's a homotextual segment from Chenille, where he will list queer books and recommend them to you, our listeners.
Hello, and welcome to the next installment of Homo Textuals. I'm your magical host, Chanel Ransinga, a part of the Gay Wire team here on CTSR 88.5 FM in so-called Edmonton, situated on Treaty 6 territory. First, the usual disclaimers. I am a cisgendered gay ace man of color with my own set of experiences. Therefore, my reviews are influenced and limited to those experiences. Please be warned. Next, I will frequently refer to the LGBTQ2S plus community using the word queer as a catch-all term or for characters whose sexualities are expressed as not straight. I'm aware that the word has been used as a slur in the past with attempts to reclaim it in the present and may evoke mixed feelings. So, if this is offensive or triggering for you, you have been warned. With that out of the way, let's get to it. We have Prince of Air and Darkness by M.A. Grant. This is an older YA fantasy romance that contains a character or characters who are gay. Trigger warnings include death, torture, and mental health issues. Phineas Smith is the only human at his magical school. He possesses a rare talent to tap into potentially unlimited magic that makes him a target throughout the magical community especially between the two fairy courts. This makes learning to control his powers necessary, if only he knew how. To make things even more complicated is the hate-love relationship he shares with his roommate, Unseelie Prince Rourke. Despite the tempestuous relationship between the two, Rourke is the only one helping Phineas learn to control his magic. But that begs the question, why is he helping Phineas? Read to find out. Despite this being a YA novel, there is quite a bit of sexual tension between the two characters. It's been a while since I've read a good fantasy novel with fairies, magic, and nefarious plots. And I'm always here for the banter between the two main characters, one who is such a golden boy and the other a broody fairy prince. For people that are fans of The Ball of Sunshine and The Moody Grump with humor, give Prince of Air and Darkness by M.A. Grant a read. We've also got Simon vs. the Homo Sapiens Agenda by Becky Albertalli and Adam Silvera. This is a YA romance with a character or characters who are gay and or bisexual. Trigger warnings include homophobia and a forced outing. Simon is an ordinary high school boy. He has two parents and a little sister, amazing friends, and he might also like boys. While he doesn't quite feel up to telling his friends or family about this little revelation, the status quo, no he's not, a blackmail from another classmate throws his life into turmoil. Wonder if Blue can help him with this problem too. This book may not need an introduction for anyone who's either seen the movie Love, Simon, or listened to a previous episode where I discussed another book in this series, Leon the Offbeat. This is a joyful read and will have you laughing and crying. I think for many of our younger readers, this may have been one of the first popular novels you read with a gay male lead. While it is not perfect, it meant a lot not only to younger readers, but also to older readers who never read a book with a queer lead in it. If that sounds like a good time, take a look at Simon vs. the Homo Sapiens Agenda by Becky Albertalli and Adam Silvera. Next up is Here the Whole Time by Vitor Martins. This is a YA romance with a character or characters who are gay. Trigger warnings include homophobia and fatphobia. Felipe has been looking forward to school break more than most students. 
Finally, 15 days away from the classmates who constantly make fun of his weight. He can sleep in, watch TV, and catch up on his to-read pile. However, when he gets home, his mom informs him of a little bump in his vacation plans. She's invited another boy to stay with them during the break while his parents are out of town, Caio, Philippe's unrequited crush. Felipe hopes his nerves and heart survive the upcoming weeks. This was such a cute book, and also very heart-wrenching. As someone who has always been on the bigger side, if not exactly in the same way Felipe is described, I know the mindset of feeling clumsy or like you're taking up space. For anyone who feels like that, I want you to know, you are not taking up space. You are existing, and it's wonderful that you do. If any of this resonated with you, please read Hear the Whole Time by Vitor Martins. And that's all for this installment of Homotextuals. For those of you who are just tuning in, never fear. The books mentioned today were Prince of Air and Darkness by M.A. Grant, Simon vs. the Homo Sapiens Agenda by Becky Albertalli and Adam Silvera, and Here the Whole Time by Vitor Martins. As always, all books are available at the Edmonton Public Library or your local bookstore. If you have any suggestions for book recommendations, please email gaywire at cgsr.com. In the meantime, keep it breezy. Thank you so much for that segment, Chenille. I feel smarter already. And that is all the time we have for today. Gaywire is a Gaywire is a production of CGSR 88.5 FM in so-called Edmonton, on Treaty 6 territory in Region 4 of the Métis Nation. We acknowledge all the many First Nations, Métis, and Inuit whose footsteps have marked these lands for centuries, including, but not limited to, the Cree, Soto, Blackfoot, Métis, Dene, and Nakota Sioux. We recognize that colonialism is an ongoing and active violence, and encourage you to reflect on your own relationships to colonialism and what accountability and growth look like for you and your communities. Give what you can and learn even more. Thank you to our guest, Kevin Schultz. Today's episode was produced by Shane Giles, Vic Jow Victor Krieger, Ashalinda, Terrence Adams, Chanel Ranasinga, Jean Vive Aslan, and myself, Artemis Peasley. Follow Gaywire on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. You can find us online at gaywire.transistor.fm. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Gaywire or at GaywireCJSR on Instagram and TikTok. Let us know what you think of the show, hit up the DM sometime, or if you'd rather be fancy, you can also email gaywire at cjsr, and you never know, you might just get to be a part of the show. 
Our artwork is by Travis Erickson, original music by Doug Hoyer and Catherine Helms. Just a quick reminder that KWire is currently recruiting for new members of the team as either a producer, an editor, a segment producer, a host, reporter, a DJ, or, like me, all of the above. Join our team, we'll have a good couple laughs, and you can leave whenever you want. But please don't. We'll miss you. And make sure not to change the station after this airing of your favorite and only queer radio show in Edmonton, because we have our music segment, Queer Jays, right after this. Until next week, ponder the consequences of your actions in the past and how that leads you today. I've been Artemis Peasley, and... Please stay on the line.